like to begin this morning with a question. You ready? Here's the question. What is Advent? What is Advent? Seems like a reasonable question this time of year, after all. We light Advent candles, we do Advent readings with our families in our homes. We stop to consider what Advent really is. Historically, Advent is about more than just the arrival of a baby in Bethlehem. In fact, it's much more than just the arrival of a baby in Bethlehem. Historically, Advent does include the birth of Jesus, but Advent has a much kind of wider aperture than that. Advent is essentially about waiting. It's not only the waiting done by those who long for their Messiah to be born, but Advent is also And maybe more importantly, about the waiting of all God's people. Waiting not merely for Jesus' birth, but waiting for Jesus' return. In fact, the term Advent comes from a Greek word that is called parousia. It's a word in the New Testament, that every time it's used, it refers to Jesus' second coming, which means that Advent looks ahead. Advent looks forward to the fulfillment of everything Jesus began to do at his first coming. You see, like those who lived in the days before Jesus' arrival in Bethlehem, the people of God... Christians today, we wait as well. We live in the in-between time between Jesus' first arrival in a manger and Jesus' second arrival when the Bible says Jesus will come back, will return. When the sky will be filled, not with angel voices announcing the birth of a king, but angel voices crying out the good news about the return of the king. Friends, brothers and sisters, we live right at this very moment in time between these two monumental events, which means we live in a time of waiting. We live every single day in Advent, which is why I think our text this morning is the perfect text for this time of year. In our text, we see Jesus departing, and as his body leaves the earth, Jesus has made two important, specific promises to his followers. In fact, Matthew captures that first promise that Jesus makes, which is a promise to be with his followers. And behold, I am with you always, Jesus said, even as he was being raised from the earth. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even until the end of this period of time in human history, a time which will be marked by Jesus' return to earth. And Jesus, we know, is good to his promise. 
He is with his followers every single day, even to this day, even today. He's not with us in flesh. He's not with us bodily. But his Holy Spirit is given to every single believer so that Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. In fact, even as Luke is writing this, keep in mind that Luke's second book, Luke part two, which is in your Bible called Acts, is essentially a seamless accounting of the work of Jesus Christ. So if we read it like that, and if we place those two books next to one another in our Bibles, it's just two chapters later in Acts chapter 2 that Luke recounts for us the giving of the Holy Spirit in its widespread, fullest sense. That's the first promise that Jesus gives as he returns to the Father. I will be with you always. The second promise Jesus makes is that although he will be departing from them physically, he will come back again one day. This promise is reiterated throughout the gospel witness, throughout the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We see it most clearly in passages like John chapter 14 where Jesus tells his followers, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. But let not your heart be troubled because I will come back and take you to be with myself and you will be with me forever. So with all of this as kind of a setup for our text this morning, I hope that you can see how perfect this text is for our celebration of Advent this week. In fact, this text serves as this glorious connecting piece between Jesus' first advent, his first arrival, the waiting that accompanied that, and Jesus' second advent, his return, and the waiting that accompanies that. Because without the ascension, Jesus couldn't come back. So our text this morning, I think, shows us how he left It shows us what he's doing now, and it shows us how he will return. So with that as a frame, let's read our text again. I want to read it again, not because Nick didn't do a great job, did do a great job, but because repetition is good. I want us to see this and have this imprinted on our minds and hearts. The word of the Lord says in verse 50, Then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Admittedly, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details here. There's obviously so much more we would love to know. Like, how did Jesus rise from the ground? And how fast did he rise from the ground? And like, did he go straight up or did he kind of Superman off into heaven? Like, we would love to know all these things, wouldn't we? And how high was he before his followers and disciples weren't able to see him anymore? And there's just so many more things we would love to know. How did Jesus survive above 11,000 feet without supplemental oxygen? Questions like that. You likely have a few questions of your own. 
But here, at least in these four verses, Luke provides just enough information to make his point without feeding our endless speculation. And brothers and sisters, we do know that according to 2 Peter 1.21, Luke is being carried along by the Holy Spirit as he writes these words so that these words are not just the recounting of a, a faithful physician or a careful historian, but these are actually the very words of God. Which means if there's not as much detail as we'd like, there is the perfect amount of detail we need. In fact, as an aside, this coming May, Lord willing, my plan is to preach more topically on the Ascension when we get to Ascension Sunday, which is a part of the church calendar. But this morning, what I want to do is to focus in on what Luke does give us and not on what he doesn't give us. Because I believe he's being strategic in what he gives us. I think he's, he's giving us what he does for a reason. So it's not just what he says, but the volume of what he says that's important. And I want to kind of point out as we work our way through three things that I think it's good for us to see here. I think three reasons that Luke gives us what he gives us here. No more and no less. Before we go on, I just want to say a, a big thank you. I don't do this enough, but we have a great group of great staff and great interns. And this week specifically, I was really helped by our friend and fellow CCF member Micah Johnson, or the Mallard as he's known here at CCF. And uh, I asked him back in the summer to do some research on the Ascension for me. And boy, did he deliver. So grateful, grateful for him. So three reasons or Three purposes for Luke in writing this and giving us what he gives us. I think also we could say these are three things we should learn and see from this text. First of all, I think one of the reasons Luke is so brief here is because he is answering Theophilus. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke writes and tells us that he is specifically writing to a man named Theophilus and he is writing so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So Theophilus, who's living in the days after Jesus' ascension, hears the good news of great joy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hears about the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Luke, in kindness, does all of his research and all of his study, and then he writes an orderly account so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning everything he's heard about Jesus. So, this might help us to understand why Luke is not concerned with giving us a full detailed theology of the ascension, because Luke is primarily interested in the question that Theophilus and likely all brand new believers would be asking, which is, where is Jesus now? Like if everything you are writing, Luke, is true, and everything I've heard about Christianity is true, then where is Jesus now? If he's been raised from the dead, why isn't he here? In fact, if Theophilus knows Luke, which 
seems highly likely, then it's not a stretch to assume that he's at least familiar with Paul. So it would be logical for Theophilus to ask, okay, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then why am I hearing the gospel from Paul and not from Jesus himself? And so Luke gives this brief description of the ascension in order to answer the question, where is Jesus now? He's, he's answering the question about the bodily presence of Jesus. In fact, when Matthew records the ascension, he includes that Jesus is promised to be with believers to the end of the age, as I said. And if you remember later on when Paul writes, he talks about the union that we have by the Holy Spirit with Christ. But we shouldn't let that overshadow the fact that Jesus' body is not here. Jesus' body is not walking around in Israel or Palestine today. He's not with us here in the flesh, just as he wasn't with Theophilus in the flesh. In fact, our friend Micah helpfully wrote, While Jesus has not left us as orphans, and it genuinely was to our advantage that he go to the Father, it is good to feel the ache of bodily separation from Christ. If his presence with us by the Spirit were meant to be a wholesale permanent replacement for his bodily presence, then John would not have said, Amen, come Lord Jesus. You'd not have the yearning of the first century church to long for the return of Jesus Christ if in fact the presence of the Holy Spirit were just to be this wholesale kind of bodily uh, a permanent replacement for Jesus' presence. But instead, we see throughout the New Testament the theme of the apostles who wrote often about eagerly waiting for Christ's return, which leaves room for us as well, even this morning, to eagerly long for Christ's bodily presence, even as we experience the presence of his Holy Spirit, which is wondrous and glorious. And so one reason that Luke includes the details he does, even while omitting so many things we would love to know, is to demonstrate where Jesus' body has gone. A second reason this morning that Luke includes what he does, even with so much that he omits, is to put the emphasis on Jesus' enthronement. To put the emphasis on Jesus' Enthroned. Again, look at verse 50. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Luke quite simply tells us that Jesus was carried up into heaven. If we only look at that verse in isolation, that doesn't sound like a lot of detail. It doesn't give us much we wouldn't think to go on. But if we read that in light of the entire book of Luke, which 
Pastor Nick referenced earlier, we've been making our way through for a little over three years now. So certainly you remember all the details and the flavors and the themes and threads in the book of Luke. But if we begin to see it in light of everything that Luke has written, and if we understand that likely many in the first century church would have written or would have read this letter or would have been read to them all in one setting, it would be easier to kind of pick up on these themes. And if we do that, we begin to see that Luke has dropped clues for us all along the way. For example, in Luke's writing, it's clear that heaven is most commonly referred to as the dwelling place of God. The heaven isn't primarily just a location, but heaven is primarily the place where God dwells. But there's something else. In Luke 24, 49, passage we looked at last week, Jesus says to his followers, behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. There's another indication as Jesus is ascending on high to the father. He's about to send the the promised gift from the father that will come from on high. Again, we see the power. We see Jesus' future heavenly location and the, the authority and the power and the glory and the grandeur of being in heaven, of being at the right hand of the Father. In fact, if we go back even just a little bit earlier to Jesus' trial, specifically when he's talking to the council in Luke twenty two sixty nine, 69, you remember Jesus tells them, but from now on the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this right hand is not a, a lesser power or a vice power. This is a, a co-ruling with the Father. But this isn't something Jesus is making up on the spot. He's alluding, as we said last week, to Daniel, or a few weeks ago, to Daniel chapter 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, we hear this term, the Son of Man, which refers to the Messiah who will come. And Daniel chapter 7 points ahead to the glorious time when this Son of Man, when this Messiah will reign over his eternal kingdom. In fact, keep your finger in Luke chapter 24. Just turn back to the left with me to Daniel chapter 7. I think it's good for us to see this with our own eyes so that you can return here later and so that you can see that I'm not making this up. In Daniel chapter 7, we're going to pick up in verse 13. Daniel 7 is Daniel recounting a vision that he's received from God, from Yahweh. And Yahweh has given him this vision, Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. He writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, how does that relate to what we've just seen in Luke chapter 24 with the ascension? Remember, Jesus on trial has already made the connection to Daniel 7. He's already revealed that he is the Son of Man, the promised Messiah. And so now in the ascension, the Son of Man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is approaching the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And he's approaching him in order to receive his kingdom. We often think of Daniel chapter 7 in reference to Christ's return. In fact, Jesus himself uses it to refer to his return, to describe the way he will return. But Daniel 7 does not describe here in these verses a journey from heaven to earth, but rather it describes a journey from earth to heaven. Look at verse 13 again. Daniel sees a vision, and what he sees is this vision of the clouds of heaven. And then there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So here in Daniel 7, in these verses, the Son of Man goes on clouds to the Ancient of Days. Which means Daniel chapter 7, in these verses, it's a vision of the ascension. Jesus ascends on the clouds to come and be presented before the Ancient of Days, before the Father. And as he is presented before the Father, he is given glory and dominion and a kingdom, just as he said when he was on trial that he would be. Behold, you will see the Son of Man seated with power and glory. And that's exactly what happens here in this scene from heaven as Daniel is getting this firsthand look at what is happening in heaven. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So coming before the ancient of days, the Son of Man has given a kingdom, and then one day Jesus will return, coming on the clouds of heaven. But before he can return on the clouds, he first had to go on the clouds to receive his kingdom. To put it another way, Jesus, having already been vindicated by the resurrection, is further vindicated by the ascension, by taking up the position of the divine king that he promised he would take. In fact, I think it's helpful to see how Luke ties all of this together when he opens his second letter or part two of his recounting. So you can take your finger out of Daniel. Keep your finger in Luke if you can. A little finger gymnastics this morning. And flip over to Acts chapter one. This is Luke part two. I think it's helpful for us to see how Luke ties all of this together as he begins the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, 
you notice, verse 6 might have a heading over it saying the ascension. So Luke is going to give a few more details there. But if you look at verse 9, Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So how does this connect with Daniel chapter 7? Jesus is taken on a cloud. Notice, he's not just hidden by a cloud from their sight. He's taken by a cloud. Just as Daniel sees in his vision the Son of Man coming on the clouds, being taken by a cloud and presented before the Father that he might be enthroned to receive glory and honor and dominion and power to rule and reign I think this solidifies the connection between Daniel chapter 7 as the description of the ascension and the prediction of Jesus' return. Which brings us to our third theme in this very brief account of Luke in Luke chapter 24. And simply put, I think Luke is leaving room for Acts. An additional explanation, I think, for maybe why Luke shares what he does about the ascension is because he's already planning on writing the book of Acts. And so in giving this bare-bones description here in Luke chapter 24, he leaves room for a fuller description in Acts chapter 1. In fact, I think we see Luke in Acts chapter 1. The fact that we have more verses on it, there's more detail given, he's it's because Luke is using the ascension of Jesus as a springboard to begin the narrative of the work of Jesus. You might be thinking, well, if Jesus ascends, how is Luke going to spend his time in the book of Acts talking about the ministry of Jesus? The answer is the ministry of Jesus, Luke recounts in Acts, is Jesus' ministry through his hands and feet. Not physically, but his hands and feet, which is the body of Christ, the church. So Luke ties together Jesus' bodily life and ministry in the gospel of Luke with Jesus' now ministry through his church, his people, his hands and his feet. And, and the, the, the thread that he uses to bind those together is the ascension, giving just enough detail as Luke ends to show Theophilus that Jesus has ascended, which is why he's hearing the message of Jesus through Paul and the apostles and others but then also by opening the book of Acts, by setting the stage for Jesus not to draw the highlight on Jesus' ascension as though we park out there, but to see Jesus' ascension as now the reason and the fuel and the way in which Jesus continues to serve. It's no mistake that we have the ascension, and right after the ascension, we have the giving of the Holy Spirit. And it's now in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit that the people of God minister as the work of Jesus on earth, as the people of Jesus. That's why we're called the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Luke is wanting to show us that the growth of the church is not a separate story from that of Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection and reign, but rather is the continuation of it. So, Jesus ascends to the Father. Jesus' enthronement in heaven means 
that his body is absent from us, but it also means that Jesus has now taken upon himself the fullness of what it means for him to be the Messiah, to be ruling and reigning. The ultimate fulfillment of the Messiah, that job description, the hopes and the promises made throughout the Old Testament, explained by Jesus throughout his life and ministry, further clarified through the ministry and the work and the writing and the teaching of the apostles, the fullness of that is not achieved unless Jesus has ascended back to the Father to rule and reign. We're still missing something. But now that Jesus has ascended, Jesus is actively, presently, in this very moment, ruling and reigning with all dominion and all authority and all power. He has fulfilled his mission as the Messiah. He is enthroned as Lord in Christ. This is what I think Paul refers to when he writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Now, take a deep breath. I know that's a lot, even for the second service on Sunday morning. So what I want to do is step back, zoom out just a little bit. One of the reasons we prayed that God would open our eyes this morning to see wonderful things in his word, that he would incline our hearts towards his testimony, is because there is a lot here, but it's not too much for us. With the Lord's help, we're asking that he show us and teach us these things that we might see what's actually here. But what I want to do is just give, spend a couple of minutes giving an outline of what we've just talked about. So if you need a visual or you need a clear outline or you just need some bullet points or if you're a cliff notes kind of person, then what I hope to do is in the next two to three minutes just kind of provide everything we've talked about up until now and just summarize it, boil it down to its most basic essence. In five points. First, we see Jesus ascending on a cloud. It's clear. Luke 24, our text this morning. And then the camera shifts. As Jesus ascends, the camera now changes. It shifts from the perspective of the disciples and the apostles and Jesus' followers who are looking up, and the camera shifts to the vision that God gives to Daniel of what it looks like as Jesus is ascending. In other words, we have live footage of Jesus arriving. And Daniel describes what happens as Jesus ascends and after Jesus ascends. Really, it's the, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 24, which says, open wide you gates that the king of glory may come in. And that's what we see in Daniel 7. Then third, the camera angle shifts a bit more. We see this more more time-lapse photography of Jesus' reign and his heavenly location at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning between the time periods of the ascension and his return when he comes back. And in that period of time, we see Jesus ruling and reigning. In fact, this is the time period we are in right now with Jesus, even right now, ruling and reigning, which is why Paul, when he writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, set your minds on the things of Christ, where Jesus Christ is seated, ruling and reigning. This present reality 
which is chapter f- or number four, present reality, the present position of Christ ruling and reigning on the clouds. And this reminder, even in Acts chapter one, verse 11, that he will come back in the same way we saw him go. He will return on clouds. Which brings us to the fifth point. Jesus will return in the manner in which he departed. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear him. So Jesus goes on the clouds. He reigns at the right hand of God. He returns on the clouds to reign in our midst. Brothers and sisters, if we were to kind of summarize everything Luke is trying to do here in this entire book, it might sound something like this. Luke is writing to give us certainty that Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah, who has left, but who is even right now ruling and reigning and who will come back to reign. And our certainty isn't just a wish and a prayer. Our certainty in Jesus' return, his second advent, is tethered to the fulfilled promises of his first advent. That just as he came as was promised and lived and ministered as was promised and died and rose again as was promised, Jesus will one day return again just as he's So you can see why Advent is more than just a Bethlehem stable. You can see why historically, in fact, the church focused as much on the return of our glorious Savior as much as they did on his miraculous birth. You just go back and read church history. They focused sometimes more energy and attention on the return of Christ on his second Advent than they did the first Advent. I think it would do well for us to do the same. I think in so doing, we even more fully celebrate the wonderful message of John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, the glory of our reigning King, who was with the Father in glory, who came to earth who returned to the Father in glory, is currently reigning in glory, and will one day come bringing that glory with him to make all things new. In fact, this future-looking celebration of Advent is, in fact, what some of our most famous Christmas hymns capture so well. These are the truths that we sing every Christmas, whether we realize it or not. Just how forward-facing they are, not just backward-facing. For example, listen to these words from Joy to the World that Isaac Watts wrote so long ago. And see if in these very words you hear and and see the the straining ahead and the longing for Jesus' return. And not just Jesus' original arrival on earth. Joy to the world. The Savior reigns reigning and ruling. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Paul would tell us that creation is groaning. The rocks and the fields and hills are groaning, longing for their redemption, longing for the return of Christ Jesus. 
And what is the repeated, repeated sounding joy that they resound? It's that the Savior reigns, is that he will one day return. I think this is even more evident in this next verse that Watts writes for us. No more let sins and sorrows grow. When will that happen? Nor thorns infest the ground. It's a result of the curse all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. And when will that be reality? When Jesus Christ returns and removes the curse. You see, amazingly, those words are focused primarily on Jesus' second coming and on the joy that will be made complete when the curses of the fall are passed and when we will forever be with Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't celebrate the first coming. We don't have the second coming without the first coming. But it means Advent is so much more than just looking back to a stable. It's looking ahead to the sky. And this is the joy that the followers of Jesus on that hill that night in Bethlehem or Bethany understood so well. Even as Jesus lifted off from the ground and ascended into the sky, we read verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What did the ascension spark inside these followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Not tears at his departure. Not fear or sorrow. Jesus' ascension sparked and inspired joy-filled worship. They recognized Jesus has gone to rule and to reign over all things, and he will return just as he promised. Which is why they worshiped him and then returned to Jerusalem with great joy. So brothers and sisters, may the reign of our Savior, may both his first advent and our eager anticipation of his second lead us to worship. May our worship be filled with joy as we remember that just as God was faithful to send Jesus into our world, he will be faithful to send him back once more and to remove the curse and to fully and finally save his own and to bring us and gather us into his presence forever and ever and ever. May we sing, even this morning, these words as our doxology, our praise, and our worship to God with great joy. These words that declare when on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign we will ever sing. All glory 
to Christ. Would you stand with me? To, what, to him who was and who is and who is to come, we bring glory and honor and praise even as we sing these words from the depths of our heart as our response to our glorious reigning king and the, the promises that both brought him into our world and will bring him back. We declare now with hearts filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.